Last Sunday, we studied the first of the seven parables about the kingdom of God in Matthew 13. There we saw how four different types of soil represent the four different hearts to Jesus' word, as well as the foresight of the sowers for the kingdom of God, which are, we are not supposed to be discouraged, but actually be diligent, because one day at our harvest, eternal harvest of God, we will be delighted. All the hard work will pay off. Today's parable of weeds begins where the last week's parable left off, with a good crop growing in the good soil. In that sense, this parable of weeds looks like a sequel to the parable of a sower. In this parable, seed has taken root in the good soil and start flourishing. But devil is not idly watching Christians grow in peace and quiet. He is out to disrupt us and defy the will of God. So with that, let's read our text together. We'll read once again responsibly. I'll read a one verse and you read a following verse. So I'll read first, verse 24 of Matthew 13. Jesus told them another parable. Kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed a good seed in his field. While everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed wheat among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and the formed head, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An uh, enemy did this, he replied. The servant asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the wheat, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At the time, I will tell the harvester, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of wheat in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is a son of man. The field is a word, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is a devil. The harvest is the end of age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of the teeth. Then the righteous will shine like a sun in the kingdom of their father, Whoever has ears, let them hear. Flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. In the parable of weeds, we find that Jesus was not the only one who saw, but the devil also saw. Early church fathers, they called devil ape of God. In Latin, simia dei is a monkey, monkey of God. By that they mean devil imitate God in the contrary ways. 
just like uh, you know, chimpanzees and monkeys imitate the humans, you know, movie like a Tarzan. Some of you know what Tarzan is. You know, my reference point is getting us smaller and smaller. So, if you don't know Tarzan, ask your parents. <laughs> now, just as Christ uh, saw the God's truth as a gospel to save the world, devil also saw his lies as a false gospel to deceive and destroy the world. That's why one Matthew commentator called the parable of wheat today, great world war. Great world war. Not a world war, great world war. In the great world war, the word of God and the words of Satan fight against each other for the soul and the mind of every human being and every human society. So in order to win the great world war, we must know the three truths and facts about our spiritual life. So let me give you an outline today. First, reality of evil and our response to the evil, and then finally God's reckoning with the evil. Reality of evil actually you know, asks the question, why are there so many bad things going on in the world? And then second point, that our response to evil tells us what we are supposed to do. And then finally, reckoning with the evil is what God is doing and what God will do at the end with the evil. So first truth and the almost frightening fact that Jesus told us today is the existence of a devil. He called the devil his enemy, verse 25. While everyone is sleeping, his enemy came and sowed among the wheat. And then also verse 38, he is the evil the enemy who saw them, we the, are the people of evil, and the enemy who saw them is a devil. You know, Bible is very clear about the existence of evil. You know, compared to the Eastern religions, such as my former you know, religion of Buddhism, Bible points out the supernatural origin and the reality of evil. You know, in Buddhism, evil is a rather internal or uh, subjective. You know, all evil comes from the self-scraping of our heart and mind. Therefore, Buddhism believes if one controls one's self and desire for that they meditate and then do ascetic practices, they think somehow they can subdue evil. In comparison, Bible takes the Bible takes the evil far more seriously than just subjective or internal reality. You know, if you look at the, uh, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 to 14, the devil was originally fallen and, you know, angel. But somehow he was in love with his own beauty and he challenged the throne of God. So devil rebelled against God because of his own hubris. Hubris means a deadly pride of self-importance. He thought, he should be God, and he can run the world better than God. So he wanted and attempted to order universe around him, and that's how you know devil you know came. According to today's parable, devil is a, like a, a, a terrorist. In this story, you know, notice this: devil is not able to root out good seed sown by the farmer or God or Jesus. Just as Jesus said in the John chapter 10, verse 25, that no one can snatch them, 
that means my sheep from my father's hand, all the devil can do is to sow the weeds among the wheat. And Martin Luther, the reformer Martin Luther, once said that wherever God erects a house of prayer, the devil builds a small chapel right next to. By the way, this kind of agricultural terrorism happened very often in the ancient times that the Romans forbade it by law. So this parable is actually based on real story, you know, real happenings. Now, this parable of a wheat shows us an important truth about our spiritual life. That is, devil cannot destroy God's work, but he can do some damages. Let me repeat that. Devil cannot destroy God's good work, but he can do some damages. You know, one commentator makes a good observation. You know, in the first parable of a sower, the devil, the enemy, tried to hinder the growth of a plant uh, with the thorns and attacking the root. But in the second parable of a weed, you know, he cannot attack the, you know, growth anymore. It's growing well. So what he does? He attacks the fruit, not the root. The second parable is all about the fruit. And then someone said, if a Satan cannot hinder our faith, then Satan tried to corrupt our love. Now, today's parable also illustrates that evil does not have its own existence. You know, evil always exists next to good. Notice the devil does not sow weeds in his own field. He doesn't have a field of weed. You know, he sowed the weed in the field of wheat or field of good or God. Thomas Aquinas, great, you know, Roman Catholic, you know, Roman, I mean, what is it, Roman Catholic, you know, uh, uh, theologian, once said the uh, good can exist without evil, but evil cannot exist without good. Good can exist without evil, but evil cannot exist without good. You know, just like a terrorist who can create their own independent state because people don't want to live under them, right? So what they do, they always terrorize you know, some people and scare them. Evil does not seek its own space, but takes, it takes a great joy of simply opposing the good, namely God and God's good reign. Again, that's why Augustine, St. Augustine called evil is a parasite. You know, parasite cannot, it's a virus, cannot exist without the host, right? Evil is a parasite. Now, Bigger question that all of us ask from time to time is that why does God allow evil to exist? Or in this case, coexist with the good. You know, there are some people who think that the existence of evil denies existence of good. I mean, God. If God is all-powerful and good, he shouldn't allow evil to exist. And they say the fact that evil exists shows that Either God is not really powerful or not really good. Either way, evil negates the goodness or greatness of God. That's what they, you know, you know, argue. What do you think? You know, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says this. Existence of evil is actually indirect proof of God's existence. He said evil actually 
indirectly prove God's existence. And then he said, a person does not call a line crooked unless he or she has some idea of a straight line. It's like, you know, someone cannot call, this is too dark, this room is dark. How do you know it's so dark unless you know the light or you have seen the you know, sun or something like that? Knowledge of evil is impossible without knowledge of good. And the existence of objective goodness is impossible without existence of God. Evil, therefore, is surprisingly the evidence for God, not against God. If God does not exist, Actually, objective goodness does not exist. And if objective goodness does not exist, then objective evil does not exist either. If God does not exist, we can call anything objectively good or bad. This is why, you know, atheists who deny the existence of God with a problem of, uh, you know, evil and innocent suffering, they have actually a bigger problem or different problem. I call it problem of good. You know, G.K. Chesterton once said, the, uh, where do the atheists, when atheists are happy, who do they thank for? You know, they have a problem of good. If a God does not exist or denied, what makes you call every, anything objectively or even universally good? If God does not exist, anyone can, any powerful person can claim to be a God, and whatever he call good will be good. You know, without God, everything is permissible. And the distinction between good and evil is totally gone. Now, let me kind of bring us back to here. Evil is a real. Bible said evil is a definitely real. But at the same time, evil is unnecessary. Evil is unnecessary and problematic. And I must add, it's a mystery. Yes. We don't know, Bible doesn't tell us everything about evil. We don't know exactly why good angel, one time a good angel, all of a sudden got this kind of a pride into himself, hubris, and then opposed God. It's a mystery. Even though we know pride led his fall, where does the pride come from? It's a mystery. But you know what? There is a greater mystery than evil. That is a mystery of good. Mystery of God. Because our God is greater than any evil. And according to today's passage, days of evil are numbered. And Bible tells us God did not create us to do life alone. But God created us to do life with him. Because he's a creator. And he knows how to make a life work. Amen? Greater mystery of all is not evil. It's about amazing eternal, unconditional love of God. Now, what does God want us to do about evil? That's our second point, our response to evil. Look at the verse 27. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow some good seed in your field? Where then did a weed come from? An enemy did this, he replied, and servant asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the wheat, you may uproot the wheat along with them. When the servant saw what the enemy did to their good field after some time, they asked the master, what should we do? Should we pull them up? And master said, leave them alone 
for now. And if you try to, you know, we, you know uh, pull the wheat, in the process, you can destroy the wheat. By the way, according to uh, uh, the Palestinian, you know, Palestine, you know, farmers or export, the farming export, the root of the wheat is weaker than wheat, that of the wheat. So actually, it's not a good practice at all. Now, this answer of the owner reveals a very, very important truth about God's kingdom. Do you remember this whole Matthew 13 that we've been studying? It's about the parables about kingdom of God, right? The theme is a kingdom of God. Don't forget that, okay? And today's parable tells us a very important truth about kingdom of God. That is, Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God, but kingdom of God Jesus inaugurate is realizing or coming incrementally rather than immediately. Okay? New Testament scholars and theologians, they say that Christ's kingdom has two stages, arrival and consummation or perfection. The first stage is when Christ commands the kingdom of God by revealing God's heart in his first coming, incarnation. The second stage, the consummation, is, will be done when he comes back in his second coming. Between these two stages, followers of Christ must be patient with discernment and hope. The context of today's parable came from the question that John the Baptist asked earlier in the Matthew chapter 11. Do we have a Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist question? You know, John the Baptist, you know, who was in prison, heard about uh, everything that Jesus did and sent his disciples to Jesus and, I the one who is to come or should we expect someone else to as a Messiah? Why did John the Baptist ask even that about uh, Jesus' messianic identity here? Wasn't he the first one who actually told everybody that is, uh, you know, promised Messiah, you know, didn't he say himself to be a, you know, voice in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord or Messiah? You need to understand the context here. Like many Israelites at the time, John the Baptist believed that when Messiah or Savior comes, he, the Savior, will, you know, Messiah will eradicate the injustice and the evil in Israel and establish the Israel or God's reign for good. So at the time, you know, John the Baptist, along with the many pious Jews like Nicodemus, they thought Jesus would liberate Israel from occupation of a Roman imperial power and the traitors like Herod, just like Moses, you know, liberated Israel from Egypt. But what happened? John the Baptist found himself today in prison, speaking, for, speaking the truth against the powerful. And for calling out justice, his neck is about to be detached from his body. That's why he asked the question, Jesus, if you are the Messiah, have a power to heal and perform all the supernatural things, why don't you eradicate, remove all the evil and establish you know, God's kingdom forever? To the question of John the Baptist, and many of us who struggle with the reality of evil, Jesus told us today that the followers are the people who are living between two times. Two times. 
beginning of a kingdom and the completion of the kingdom. By the way, Latin word for between two times is a seculus, seculus. Seculus literally means in between, in between. From which we have a, you know, English word secular, right? But seculars in Latin actually means temporary, temporary or time being. It's a language of a time. But in modern period, you know, somehow this word secular became a language of a space instead of time. So we say things like, oh, there is a you know, secular realm and there is a sacred realm. Church is a sac you know, sacred and the world is a secular. That's not how early Christians or medieval Christians understood the word secular. Secular simply means time being, temporary. So you and I, we don't distinguish secular and sacred. For us, we serve God secularly, temporarily while we're waiting, and eternally when Christ comes back. We don't distinguish this is a sacred, this is secular. You know, that spatial division is a modern invention. We get that clear? Now, why did Jesus tell us to leave the weed alone? Here, wake up and listen to me. We must hear and hear the important instruction and the insight about us. The main reason for that is humans, you and I, are not able to eradicate evil. Only God can. And the reason you and I are not able to eradicate evil is because, you know, in actual, you know, uh, uh, according to the Palestinian farmers, it's hard to distinguish the weed and wheat, and weed and the wheat. The word for wheat is a donnel, and donnel is a very common weed in Palestine, looked like a wheat. Until when they were young, there's a almost indistinguishable. It became a distinguishable only when they are mature and ripe with the fruit. Then you can see which one is wheat and which one is wheat. Problem of uh, followers of Christ, oftentimes we think something to be evil which is not evil. That is our problem. And then, I, I, oh, one important also uh, 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 mistake. You know, there are some people who, you know, take this parable as some kind of, a, you know, a doctrine for the church. You need to notice that field in this parable means not a church, but the world. Verse 30, I say, field is the world, right? Some people take this parable in the wrong way, saying that in the church, there are some are saved, some are not saved. Some are elected, some are not elected or reprobated. That is a wrong understanding of this parable because Matthew didn't have any ecclesiology or doctrine of the church that is some kind of a mixed or compromised church. Later, when you look at the Matthew chapter 18, you know, Matthew said very clearly, when you see brother or sister commit a sin, what are you supposed to do? You go and then correct them in love. If they don't listen repeatedly, Matthew said, then, then tell it to the church. And if they listen to the church, then church should kick them out. Matthew believed in church discipline 
and never condone the morally compromised church. So some people take this parable as a parable of a tolerance or compromise in the church. That's not Matthew's you know, idea of a church. Are we clear? Let alone Christ's you know, church. Now, sometimes Christians, we do more harm than good in eradication of evil. And the Christian history, sadly, we have, we, have a, we have so many examples like that. Christians are often too zealous and overconfident in their abilities and assumption about to deal with the evil so that they do more harm. For instance, look at the Spanish Inquisition. Look at the crusade for the Holy Land. In America, look at the prohibition, you know, the temperament movement, you know, against the drinking. You know, even though drinking is evil, when you force that anti-drinking law by state of power of the state, what happened? You know, those who study American history, the result of a provision movement is a growth of organized crimes. And they eventually it didn't work out. You know, all these Christian endeavors, intentions are good, but we overlooked our inability to distinguish you know, evil and good, especially hatred of our sin, our hatred of sin without our duty to love the sinners. So, uh, one uh, Matthew you know, scholar, uh, a commentator named Rodney Reeve, in his commentary, he pointed out this. Enemy, the devil, loves nothing better than open conflict on open field of a battle with the church armed with the enemy's weapon. Do you follow that? When church tried to eradicate evil with the weapons of a violence and force, Rather than Christ's weapons of prayers and faithful obedience to God's command, church can do more harm than good. And I want to be very clear. This is why I, you know, the call of American Christians in the 21st century is not a culture war. Let me say very clear. Culture war is not a Christian cause. We are not here to recover good old American conservative traditional values here. Our call is a spiritual battle. We are not cultural war warriors. We're supposed to be spiritual war warriors. You know, our duty is not a Christian nationalism to make America great. Our duty is to love God with all of our heart and mind and soul and our neighbors, wherever they are, wherever they come from, with the love of Christ. Amen? Because when individual experience heart of God through sacrificial love of Jesus Christ on the cross, you know what happened? They transformed. They changed. And then with, along with their you know, salvation, they began to bear the fruit. And that's how social society is transformed. We fight a real battle, battle of the soul. Not just a battle of uh, you know, the culture that we like to. Let me make it clear that what Jesus said here is not to just to coexist with the evil. But Jesus said, be careful. Don't just, you know, presumptuously jump onto evil. The, our real focus must be on good, must be on God. 
we must commit ourselves to good work of God, growing wheat, increasing good crop on our part more than anything else, and to leave the complete eradication of evil to God. Amen? Our focus is on God. Our focus is, is on saving the lost and strengthening the weak and growing together the community of a true loving brothers and sisters. Now let me go to the final, third point, the God's reckoning with the evil. You know, there are some Christians think that uh, this, you know, that Christ Jesus, you know, postponement of justice to, you know, divine judgment, you know. This is not like an escapist kind of a, a strategy against the evil that are oh, just imagine, imagine heaven, everything will be okay kind of thing. This is not just like a kicking the ball down the field. You have to recognize that Jesus unapologetically refers the disciples to divine justice at the end of his story. And that Jesus, more than anyone, believes in God's judgment. He's not ashamed of trusting God's judgment. If Jesus is not ashamed of trusting God's judgment, why are you and I ashamed? Or even afraid of? You know, Gospel of Matthew, even earlier in Matthew 7, Jesus said, do not judge hypocritically. Hold your interim judgment against other people. Leave the judgment to God. And today's passage, repeatedly, Jesus used the judgment in the language of a fire. Furnace. The blazing furnace. More than anyone, Jesus hates the evil. He believes God's the final destruction of evil. Do you believe in God's final judgment? Do you find the comfort as well as a caution, a warning for yourself from God's you know, judgment? Let me share uh, someone who really didn't believe in God, but who really believed in necessity of a God's final judgment. And uh, his name is Immanuel Kant. Have you heard of his name? He's a well-known German philosopher in the 18th century. And uh, he grew up in the very pious Lutheran family. And he actually initially went to university to study uh, theology. But apparently he liked uh, math and then, you know, other, you know, and then eventually studied uh, philosophy. And uh, throughout the life, he was a single guy. But he was very, very serious about philosophy. That uh, he was known for uh, strict or uh, rigid daily schedule that farmers in his you know, uh, town, they, they know when he walked by, that's the exact time. They set the time according to his daily walk. Now, Kant was influenced by John, oh, why am I talking about Kant? There is a philosophy and theology before Kant and after Kant. Kant is called the father of a modern you know, epistemology, that means a philosophy of a knowing, knowing how do you know what you know. And also, he's, they say he single-handedly saved you know, philosophy from metaphysics to modern thinking. On the same note, he debunked all the traditional Christian argument for existence of God. He destroyed Christian argument for God. And let me just explain why. 
So Kant was influenced by so-called John Locke's you know, empiricism. You know, John Locke is a guy who believed that we are born in the blank state, tabula rasa, and everything else is, uh, you know, all experience of life, right? And David Hume, guy is known for the skepticism. But Kant thought the human mind is not like a passive or blank, like John Locke said, but actually human mind is very active and well-organized like a machine. Human mind is alive and active with, a, you know, a category, you know organized along with a time and space. So with that, he have this, you know, two understanding of a human, you know, reality. He called it noumenon. Noumenon literally means things in itself. And then he said that is a material world. And then he said there is a second, you know, knowledge called the phenomenon. That is the things that appear to be or things that we perceive to be. That is a belong to our mental world, our actually understanding of whatever the thing is. Now, problem is, while a lot of things we understand through phenomenon, there is a one thing that we cannot process. That is God. Because God, by definition, is a supreme being, infinite being, one who created time and space. We are bound by time and space. God is unbound by time and space. Therefore, our mind cannot process God. Do you follow? So Kant said we cannot know about God's existence because we are not equipped to know God's existence. How can creature can know God, creator, for certain? So Kant became a so-called father of agnosticism. Not atheism, agnosticism. Agnostics is those who say you cannot be for sure to know God or not. Possibility of knowing God is totally impossible, you know, it's out. It's no longer there. That is agnosticism. So he became a father of agnosticism, right? So are we following? Are you, let me bring a conclusion quick. But a, a very interesting thing is, so why is just agnostic? Why doesn't he become an atheist? Did you know Kant believe in God too? Even though philosophically said, you cannot know God or any supreme being. Logically, he, he totally you know, rejected the possibility, but he found a different ground to believe in God. That is so-called a moral ground. Here, Kant's you know, ethics is called the deontological ethic. Deontology means a duty, okay? ethics of a duty. So he believes that uh, there are certain moral principles he called the categorical imperatives, that is a moral maxim that everybody should you know, comply to in all time, in all, all places. For instance, do not lie. No matter what happens, do not lie. Because once you lie, lie begets to lie, and then you know, society cannot function. So lie is an absolute need for society to you know, survive together. So Kant has a famous you know, story of an ex-murderer. He said, imagine if somebody run to you and say that there is a crazy guy with an axe trying to kill me. I haven't done anything wrong. Please, I'm going to hide behind that in a piano. And can you, when he comes, tell, can you tell him that I went there that way? According to Kant, what are you supposed to say? Do not lie. <laughs> That's a Kant, right? That's a Kant, you know, deontological, you know, ethics or very, without that, human beings cannot exist. Interesting thing. Kant said, there is 
One thing he cannot deny life, that is the presence of a radical evil. Presence of a radical evil. He said human beings, they are irrational. Even though they know, like him, lying is not good, but they lie. Sometimes for no good reason at all. Not to save somebody. No good reason they lie. So Khan said, human beings, they need to be accountable. So he said, even though he doesn't believe in God, he said, we need to believe God who judges at the end so that we will obey all the moral principles. So on the ground of ethical ground, Kant believes that we need a God who judges. Isn't that interesting? Now, for me, I believe in God's judgment, not because of a you know, philosophical ground like a concept, but because biblical ground and historical ground of a Jesus Christ. More than anybody, Jesus believed in the judgment of God. And he hated the evil. But you know what? Jesus experienced the greatest of evil of all himself. For what? To save the wicked sinners who denied him, who rejected his messianic claim after seeing all the supernatural miracles done. He was betrayed by his own people. And all this, Jesus didn't hate them, forgave them to the last breath of his life on the cross. I don't know about you. Once in a while, someone hurt me. I want to take a vengeance. Yep. Pastor Paul wants to be a persecutor Paul. I want to bring a vengeance. Someone who distorts the truth. Someone make a partial truth as a, you know, in their own version. Someone who vilify me. Oh, yeah. I want vengeance. You know, I want to call out. Then I remember Christ. Who took my sin? Who took my rejection? To the cross. And crucified my sin. Without my repentance. And came back. And then gave me, I am the truth, life, and way, and you can have life with me. You know, let me conclude our message today. Gospel of Matthew is a very interesting. I'm, you know, unlike the Gospel of Luke, Gospel of Matthew does not talk about ascension of Christ to heaven. Do you notice that? Even though we know at the end of Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus gave a great commission to disciples, right? Go everywhere in the world and make a disciples and baptize him in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to observe everything I told you, right? That great commission, right? But it doesn't really, you know, say that like, uh, you know, Luke and the book of Acts, there is at least, you know, waving, oh, by Jesus. Matthew is silent about Jesus' ascension to heaven. Why? The last word in the Gospel of Matthew, lo and behold, I am with you to the end of the world. Even though Jesus ascended to heaven, he never departed from us. He's a sitting at the right hand of God, hearing our cry against the evil and the answering our prayer from time to time. 
and the strengthening us and helping us. So exalted one is continually encouraging us through his presence. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So whatever evil, whatever vengeance you want to take, you have a Savior and the Lord and King whose power and whose love and presence is bigger than all the evil in this world. Amen? Let's trust God for his final judgment and vengeance, and let's focus on our own faithfulness to whatever God calls us. Let's pray.